Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Jonah Bissell. I'm the associate pastor here at First Baptist Freeport. Um, just so happy to see you guys, and thank you so much for joining us in worship. We're excited to, to have you here. Uh, now, we're in a series in the book of Acts called the Great Commission series. Uh, if you don't know what that means, basically Jesus, at the end of the gospel tradition, gave a great commission to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, and he told them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the Great Commission, and Mike and I have been exploring that commission unfold and be fulfilled in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, So this morning we're in Acts chapter 23, there's 28 chapters in Acts, and so we're coming to a close Uh, And afterwards, we'll actually go through the Pauline epistles, the letters that were written by the Apostle Paul, Um, and so we'll kind of skate through those and continue to follow the Great Commission. This morning, I want to begin uh, with a question about Paul, uh, specifically about Paul's gospel, which I think constitutes what we would call the Christian gospel. Pretty important. Was Paul's gospel... Was it really that radical? Okay. I mean, was it it really at odds with what first century Jews believed? Let me just let that simmer for a few moments. Paul's gospel, put simply, was that Messiah had arrived. This long-awaited deliverer, Messiah, had arrived, and that Messiah, who is Jesus had died and was resurrected. And in that whole process, the covenant promises given to Israel were beginning to be fulfilled. That is Paul's gospel. Now, was that really at odds with what Jews in the first century believed? At this point in Acts, Paul is arrested. He's seized. He's bound with chains. He's put on trial primarily by the Jews in Jerusalem. But should he have been? Should he have been? I say, no. (laughs) Paul's gospel, I don't think, should have made such waves, such waves as it did among first century Palestinian Jews. I think when properly interpreted, his gospel was actually completely in line with Jewish hopes, as we see unfold in the Old Testament and the literature in between. This will be kind of a different sermon. Normally I walk through, you know, verse by verse through a a text, but this morning I really just want to delve deeply into one phrase that's found in Acts 23. A phrase that's but four words in Greek. Hope and the resurrection of the dead. That is why Paul is on trial. My purpose this morning, to be totally plain, is to deepen your love of Jesus. That's, that should always be my purpose up here. To deepen your love of Jesus by expanding your view of the gospel. I really think, friends, that When understood in its Jewish context, the gospel can be seen in its utter fullness, but only when it's understood in that context. 
The gospel, I truly think, is about nothing less, hear me, nothing less than total world renewal. Total world renewal. And that only in the context of Jewish hope can it be seen for what it really is. So that's what I want to do this morning, is just explore Paul's gospel, especially as it's encapsulated in these four words, the hope and resurrection of the dead, four words in Greek. But before we dive in in earnest, uh, let's just take a moment to pray, because we do need God's help when we study his word. So let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would speak. Speak, O Lord. That's why we're here. We're not here so that folks can hear Jonah speak. Nope. Or Mike. We're here to experience you. To receive a word from God. A word that will not return void, but that will transform, that will renew, that will restore, that will heal. The same kind of word that created the universe out of nothing. That's the kind of word we want this morning, Lord. So please, soften our hearts so that we would receive that word. When you give it, we believe that you will. We love you and we praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So to get us up to speed, I told you we're in this, you know, 28-chapter book, the book of Acts. We're not going over every single inch of real estate there. We're kind of emphasizing themes in each chapter, and so every week is devoted to a different chapter. Um, And so last week, we looked at Acts 22. And in Acts 22, the apostle Paul, who was born in Tarsus, but born a Jew and raised as a Jew, he goes to Jerusalem, and he is arrested in Jerusalem. He's given the opportunity to speak, to defend himself among his brethren, the other Jews in Jerusalem at the time. So he's held in custody by the Romans, and this Roman tribune, commander of a thousand soldiers, gives Paul permission to speak. And in chapter 22, he speaks in Hebrew, the native tongue of these Palestinian Jews, and he defends himself and tells them his story. Now, everything is going well, swimmingly, until uh, verse 21, when he mentions the Gentiles. Gentiles, a fancy word for uncircumcised people, or those who are not Jews. He talks about his ministry to the Gentiles and drawing them into the people of God, and that's when all H-E-L-L breaks loose. So, uh, at this point, the Romans intervene. This is not the first time this has happened. The Jews seize Paul, and these Gentile Romans have to come help him. So they do. And it's at this point that Paul gives us some interesting information. Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh, Now, that came with some rights and privileges and uh, cost a lot of money if you weren't born a Roman citizen. But Paul was born that way, and so he had certain rights. And so the Romans take him and kind of protect him from the Jews. Uh, And basically, the tribune who had him in custody, he wanted to learn why the Jews were accusing Paul. He didn't really know. Um, So he sets up a meeting with a council called the Sanhedrin, at which the Jews, hopefully, would reveal to him exactly why they're accusing Paul. So that is where our chapter falls in Acts 23. So if you haven't already, friends, please turn with me to Acts 23. 
Uh, this can be found on page 933 of the Pew Bible. And I will be reading from the ESV. And so we're going to start at verse 6, Acts 23, 6. In the first five verses, the, the meeting begins and some things are said, but we're going to jump in at verse 6. So here we go. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, the dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So this sets the trajectory for the rest of the book of Acts. Now, there's so much that I could say about this six-verse passage. Uh, I could talk about the intricacies of Sadducean theology and Pharisaic theology and that sort of thing, but that's not what I'm here to do. <laughs> um, no, I'm here to really focus on a curious little phrase that Paul uses in verse 6. He says it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, this is not the only time Paul says something like this. To get ahead of ourselves in the series a little bit, in chapter 24, Paul is before uh, another leader. This is Felix, the Roman governor of Caesarea, north of Jerusalem. And this is what Paul says. He says, I confess to you that according to the way, which they Jews call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Hope, resurrection. In chapter 26, here Paul is before Agrippa. This is Herod Agrippa II, who is a Jewish king in Caesarea. He expresses similar sentiment. He says, now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul is confused. He has preached the arrival of the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead, two things that Jews believed, especially Pharisees, of which Paul was one. 
Paul is surprised that his gospel is making such waves among first century Palestinian Jews. And I'm confused too. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is is elaborate on exactly what it was that Jews at this time, what it was that they longed for. What did they believe? Now, what I'm about to describe has been called Jewish restoration theology. And it's really the idea that the God of Israel would fulfill his covenant promises that he made to Israel long ago. And so I'm going to elaborate on exactly what it was that these Pharisees believed And then hopefully we'll understand Paul's gospel a bit more. So to do this, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, okay? The first book in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. The first book in that few Bible you see before you. Now in the book of Genesis, we read about God, who's called Yahweh, the God of Israel, making a covenant with first a particular person, Abraham, and ultimately a particular nation, Israel. It says that God chose this one nation among other nations to be his special possession, to be his chosen people. And so God established a a treaty, a kind of covenant agreement that was used in the ancient world, and the Israelites were familiar with such treaties. Basically, he gave promises, first to Abraham, he promised that from you would come many descendants, and from you would come a great nation. Not only that, but that nation would live in this fertile land, what's known as Canaan or Palestine today. And not only that, but he promised that he would be their God, that he would dwell in their midst. But, like with all covenant treaties, there were conditions or regulations. Abraham and later the Israelites had to do certain things um, in order to keep those benefits. That's how an agreement worked. So kind of jumping forward then to the book of Exodus. Don't worry, I'm not going to summarize the whole Bible here. (laughs) In Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we read about Moses. And the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and, and God liberates them. And Moses is their leader at this time. And here is where God officially makes a covenant with the nation, the people of Israel. And it was everyone who was descended from this grandson of Abraham, known as Jacob. We hear about the 12 tribes. Those were the 12 sons of Jacob. Everyone descended from that person was known as Israel. And God made a covenant with them. And so he liberates them from Egypt, and he brings them to the promised land, Israel, Palestine, Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where you could farm and you could be happy and you could worship God in peace. So he promised to Israel political independence. He promised them agricultural fertility. He promised them family and life and happiness with God dwelling there with them. And he gave them Jerusalem, this beautiful city in which they built a temple at which they could worship God. So we've got nation, we've got worship, we've got politics even, we've got family, we've got ecology, we've got fertility. All of these things were wrapped up 
in God's covenant with Israel. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, don't even know if you have to read the Old Testament to know this, but Israel broke covenant. If you've ever signed a lease agreement and you break that contract, certain things happen. That's kind of what happened here. They broke their lease agreement with God, and the benefits of that covenant were withdrawn. Now, one of the first things that was taken away, as you'd expect in the breaking of a lease agreement, was the land. Here we think of the word exile, the exile. Nations from away, Assyria, Babylon, invade Israel, and they remove them from the land. So this land flowing with milk and honey that would produce for them, in which their families could grow and be happy, was taken from them because they began to worship other gods and transgress the commands of the covenant. So they're in exile, away from their land. Not only this, but this land was supposed to be a place where all the 12 tribes could dwell together. But as these foreign rulers come in, these tribes are scattered. Some of them are taken to Assyria, and some are taken to Babylon. They're mixed with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, so the tribes are all over the place. This is what's called diaspora, to scatter seed. They're scattered. Not only this, but Jerusalem... The temple was set on fire, burned to the ground, destroyed. Their place of worship, their mode of worship was effectively eradicated. Land is gone, worship gone, tribal unity gone. People are in exile. They're in crisis, crisis. Now, in this position of crisis, we start to see a certain kind of literature. Uh, this is known as apocalyptic literature, okay? Now, that doesn't mean the end of the world. Uh, to apocalypto, something means to unveil it, to pull the covering off of it, to kind of pull the curtain so you can see the reality of things. And so we get books like Daniel. We get the prophet Isaiah, especially the middle chapters, Ezekiel, Zechariah, texts that feature heavenly visions, that feature uh, beasts and serpents and dragons and angels and, and the sun falling down and, and so forth. The people of Israel had everything taken from them, and in crisis they are longing with visceral emotions. <laughs> They're longing for their God to arrive and to set everything to right. This apocalyptic or prophetic, sometimes it's called, literature, expresses such longings. Now, in such literature, we see language of a return, okay? A return from exile. This vision that all the people from away would come back to the land of Israel, we see a longing that the tribes which had been scattered would be united. We see a longing that non-Jews, that Gentiles would actually be drawn like an insect to a light, that they would be drawn to the light that is Israel, to worship Yahweh. We see language of the earth just bursting with fertility, 
farming being easy, the people living forever and ever, new creation language. That is written in crisis when they had none of those things and were longing for them. Now, it is only in those texts that we begin to see resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead was alive and well in Judaism, but it was only ever preached in the context of all of these other things. Resurrection was part and parcel of a larger renewal of everything that Yahweh would bring about for his people. And another feature of these texts is this figure called the Messiah, okay? So, the people of Israel have broken covenant, they're in crisis, they're longing for renewal, and they're longing for resurrection, which is part of all those other things. So to kind of sum up what Jews believed at this time, they thought that God would arrive in dramatic fashion as they are in exile, under occupation by the Romans. The people are scattered. They can't worship like they used to. They're not independent. They're not blessed in covenant. They thought God would arrive in this dramatic way with his Messiah and just all at once do away with the old and bring in the new. That there would be this mass resurrection of faithful Jews who had died all at once. And with it, they would get the land back, the people would come back, and they would live forever. Just dramatic, visceral longing. Okay. Now that is what Jews, for the most part, believed at this time. Paul stood in that tradition. Paul was a Pharisaic Jew born and raised in Tarsus, but educated in Jerusalem. And that was the type of literature he he read, and that was in his bones. And we see this throughout his letters. So he's on trial, put there by the Jews, and he's there on account of hope and resurrection of the dead, chapter 23. Now this phrase is difficult because... Some scholars think that it is the literary figure known as hendiadis, which basically is two different ideas connected by the word and that refer to the one thing. So hope and resurrection really refer to resurrection, the hope of resurrection. Now, I'm not quite sure that's how we're to interpret it. I think that Paul is talking about hope in general, Jewish longing, Jewish hope, which entails, which includes, part of which is bodily resurrection. And Paul is confused that his gospel is making such waves because that's exactly what the Jews longed for, as I just said. Now, let me just explain Paul's gospel and try to tease out some of the differences to maybe play devil's advocate. Paul, like I said, had preached that the Messiah had arrived. He identifies the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. With this Messiah, though, we don't see visibly thousands of heavenly soldiers and chariots and dragons and beasts and the earth swallowing up all the oppressors and 
everyone who had died who was faithful being resurrected. That's, that's not really what we see. Paul had also taught that the Messiah had died, which is not something you see in apocalyptic literature. They, they thought of the Messiah as this triumphant figure who would come to reclaim the world and overthrow the enemies and so forth. He said that Jesus died and that only Jesus, for the most part, was resurrected. This, I think, is where the Jews stumbled. They thought of resurrection, they believed in it, but they thought of it as a mass resurrection of all the faithful Jews coming with all of this other stuff all at once. They were interpreting those texts quite literally and I think thought that it would be this dramatic, singular, one-time event where the old would be done away with and the new would come. But with Jesus, we don't see immediate overthrow of the Romans. We don't see the land of Palestine immediately bursting with fertility. We don't visibly see thousands upon thousands of Jews being resurrected with Jesus. No. In other words, we don't see the new age doing away with the old in one fell swoop. What we see is the new age almost overlapping with the old. We see Jesus born in this old age, not too old age, but in this old era, born as a creature of the Virgin Mary, and through Jesus gradually opening up this new world. So it's not as uh, disjunctive, it's not as decisive, as explicit, as visible as the Jews thought. And so I think that's why they resisted. Their expectations for the Messiah and for God's renewal weren't completely met in Jesus and in Paul's gospel. But I argue that all of those things that I spoke of with the Jews and their longing was actually fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. If you trust in Jesus and you are baptized, you are spiritually dying with him and being resurrected with him. We see in the book of Acts that non-Jews, Gentiles from all over are being drawn into the people of God. We see the Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit poured out into people. The prophet Joel, among these crisis texts, speaks about that being the sign of the end. We see this new world beginning to unfold, but not in the kind of dramatic, obvious way that was expected among the Jews. I really think, friends, that Paul's gospel if rightly interpreted, shouldn't have made such waves among faithful first-century Jews. Such people longed for resurrection and restoration of land, people, worship, nation, life. The resurrection of Jesus began this. I truly think it did. It didn't fit with these expectations the Jews had, these interpretations of their texts. But if those texts were interpreted rightly as the symbolic literature that they are, 
they would expect God's imminent arrival to put all things to right. And I think that happened in Jesus. This future reality that the Jews longed for, I think, has invaded the present moment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I just gave you guys a lot. (laughs) Um, And this is great, academically, in terms of knowledge of Jewish background and things like that, but, but what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you and me? I think the fact that God's restoration of the whole world is not some pie-in-the-sky, distant future reality, but that it has already broken into the present in Jesus ought to assure us that the rest will come too. It is hard living in crisis. I would say that we too, in a way, are living in crisis. It's hard to trust in the promises of God if none of them have been fulfilled already. If it only exists for us in the future. But I truly think that in the person of Jesus, who is not only Messiah, but is God himself, in the person of Jesus, new creation has already happened, has already begun to be set in motion. And so that ought to give us assurance that the rest will come too. Not only this, but all of this should expand our view of the gospel. The gospel is not about going to heaven when you die, in the words of N.T. Wright. It's not even solely about receiving a resurrection body so that we can go on living and be happy forever. No. It's about God's renewal of all things. It's about God fulfilling all of those promises he had given to Israel and drawing us into those promises. It's about new land, physical land, new people, new mode of worship. It's about new life, spiritual and physical. It's about a new connection with God himself. It's about total world renewal. How can I get in on this? Hopefully you're asking that in your head. When can I sign up? Well, what's wonderful is that you don't have to make an advanced deposit for something that won't come for decades and years, but you can enter this new world right now. It's here. It's already here right now. The good news, the gospel, is just that. It's not contract. It's not law. It's good news. It's information that ought to be received and celebrated, believed in, trusted. The good news is that God has already begun to restore the whole world in the person of Jesus. So to be part of that, Receive that news. Trust in Jesus. 
be connected to him. If you are united to Jesus, which comes just through faith in him, you'll become part of this new world. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's how it should be translated, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, new creation has already happened. And so this body of believers, even though we don't seem perfect and we aren't, in a very real way, we are new creation. And you can be part of that too. God is renewing the world. And that, friends, includes you. Be part of God's total world renewal, a process that's already begun. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we need you. We are stupefied, Lord, by your grace. Can't put it any other way. Overwhelmed by your love that you would become one of us, that you would rehead a new human race and with it a new universe. Draw us into that place today, Lord. Renew the world through us. We love you and pray that you would continue to bless our worship of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing How Great Thou Art.